Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Connecting to the big show. In three, two, one. When do we take control of our lives and our destiny? We're a small country, but we punch way above our weight. Like, I'm filming now at this stage, to be honest with you. I thought it was one of the hardest things to do. It was horrendous. We're the one for Cork and ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The lines are live. Let's kickstart the conversation. This is the Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Roughly 50 days then, supposedly to the end of all of this to you might you noticed that this morning actually if you came in on the bus to town the buses all the yellow I think anyway if anyone was on a bus this morning I wasn't I think all of the yellow things are gone off the seats you know those please don't sit here on the seats they're gone so back to full capacity buses this morning with masks and we'll be wearing our masks on the bus up to Christmas and into the new year. I think we can take that as red. We'll also be wearing our masks in the shop for the foreseeable future. Whether we'll have to wear them going around the shopping centre is another matter. But pretty much everything else will be back to normal by the end of October. We knew the speech was coming. Uh, Eventually there was nothing much of a surprise nature in it. Maybe afterwards we learned in terms of people going back to work who've been working from home for a long time that their boss may be able to force them back into the office even if they don't particularly want to go. Discuss that in a minute. But let's start this morning uh, on this, the 1st of September, first day of autumn. Let us start on this Wednesday, the 1st of September, by having a listen to some of the highlights of the Taoiseach's speech yesterday. We are very unlikely to ever be rid of this virus completely. Indeed, we expect to see an increase in case numbers over the coming weeks. But the combined strategy of careful reopening and energetic vaccination has brought us to a point where we can begin to do things differently. Sectors that remain closed or are still subject to massive restrictions can begin to hope again. The government has consulted closely with our public health officials and has decided that in our management of COVID-19, the time is now right to begin the move 
from regulation and widespread restrictions on people's personal freedom to an approach primarily defined by public health advice, personal behaviour, judgment and responsibility. From the 6th of September, we will see an easing of restrictions on organised indoor and outdoor events and mass gatherings. From that date, theatre, music and live events can take place for vaccinated people at 60% capacity indoors and 75% capacity outdoors. Religious services will be allowed to proceed at up to 50% capacity. Then, from the 20th of September, we will ease restrictions on indoor and outdoor group activities. I'm under no illusions about how personally difficult it has been for so many people, young and old, to have had to curtail their artistic, cultural and sporting lives for so long. Return to work for those still working from home may also commence on a phased and staggered basis from the 20th of September. And on the 22nd of October, we then hope to be in a position to remove the following measures. The legal requirement to prove immunity in order to access indoor hospitality or other events. All remaining restrictions on indoor and outdoor events and activities. All remaining restrictions on religious or civil ceremonies. The legal requirements for mask wearing outdoors and in indoor private settings. Over centuries we have demonstrated that as a nation we have great resilience and ingenuity. Over the last 18 months, we've drawn on all of that and we have endured. Now we will push on. We will rebuild our economy and renew our society. We will do these and all the other things with renewed energy and determination, with personal freedoms restored and our country, we hope, emerging from this most extraordinary period in our history. That's a little three-minute cut-down of what was approximately a 12-minute speech by Antishuk Michal Martin last evening. I was wondering whether that seagull was going to make an appearance. He's been in all the speeches since this started. But let us go straight away to the Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, uh, Michael McGrath. Good morning, Michael. Good morning to you, PJ. And welcome to the Opinion Line. Minister, you, you sit on the COVID committee, the subcommittee of Cabinet. So my straightforward first question to you is, did Neffet give its blessing to all of this plan? So maybe just to start by explaining how, how it works, PJ, we uh, on that committee meet with uh, Neffet and the Vaccination Task Force and the HSC on a regular basis. So on Friday of last week, uh, they would have met with us and they would all have made presentations uh, to give the latest situation in our hospitals with the vaccination programme uh, from Neffet's perspective on the modelling and so on in relation to the, uh, the trajectory of the virus as they see it. And and we would ask them a lot of questions and there would be a good discussion over a number of hours, uh, as there was. And then uh, we, as the politicians uh, in government, uh, would have held our own discussions then privately, reflected on everything that we heard uh, and we would have made decisions. So I think the best way to describe it is that the, uh, the Neffet advice um, has certainly provided the guidance mm. uh, for the decisions that we have made. But it, it, it's not that we uh, arrive at our decisions and then present them to Neffet and look for the green light. No, That's not how it works. but, but, but you, so would you put it on the table at any point? Well, look, here's what we plan to do. What's your advice? 
Yes, in the course of the discussions, we would put scenarios to them. We would say, what about doing this uh, on this date? What about uh, moving at a different speed? What about these restrictions? Can we have a fresh look at those? And if you look at the, the letter that was issued uh, by Dr. Tony Houlihan uh, to Minister Donnelly on the 25th of August, that forms the basis really of the decisions that we have now made. Uh, it's a, a long letter, as they tend to be, mm. uh, 21 pages long, and it contains the latest modelling information uh, and so on. And uh, an effort in that letter they're they're not very specific in relation to individual measures on individual dates mm -hmm. what they do is they set out the criteria that they believe would need to be met uh, to allow for the easing of restrictions and then it's a matter for judgment you know mm -hmm. this isn't an exact science uh, government has to take on board their views and make the ultimate decision as the elected government of the country because i don't need to remind you minister they have been ignored at our peril in the past well, I think we've had a, a very good relationship with NEFIT right through uh, the pandemic over the last 18 months. But uh, of course, at different uh, times in that process, you know, we, we may well have disagreed with them. Uh, we may well have felt that they were going uh, too slowly or perhaps at times they surprised us by moving quite quickly. Uh, but in, in the main, uh, the, the actions and decisions that the government has made uh, since March of last year have been guided and influenced by an effort. Uh, mm. But we are the elected government. It does fall on us ultimately to make uh, the decisions in the democracy um, that we uh, we operate within. And I, I think NEFIT are comfortable with the decisions uh, that we have made. And uh, if they weren't, I think you'd, uh, you'd hear that pretty quickly. OK, so pretty much everything gone by the 22nd of October. Bar, as I said in the introduction there, masks on buses and trains. We'll be doing that for a long time. Masks at the shops. We'll probably be doing that for a long time. We know that when the next set of... With the, with the fig, we know the figures are going to go up in the next couple of weeks, the daily figures, because yeah. of schools and the inevitable uh, consequence of a million extra people moving around every morning and evening. Now, the CUH is at the highest level of overcrowding since the start of the pandemic, Minister. Are we taking a big risk moving so quickly with that crisis in our major hospital here in Cork? What we're doing is not risk-free. Uh, that is, is certainly the case. Uh, you know, there is uncertainty running right through our experience of dealing with this pandemic. But we are at a point now where we have an incredibly high level of vaccination, uh, approaching 90% of uh, people uh, age 12 and over, uh, which I think is remarkable and is really uh, a testament to the Irish public mm. and also to our, our health service uh, and those involved in, in that programme. And it is affording a high degree of protection. But you are right in pointing out that the models do show and we have been very upfront about this, that case numbers are likely to rise further. And the peak of this uh, will not happen for a number of weeks yet. But in parallel with that... Would it the, have been better then to wait until we had hit the peak before releasing this plan or, or beginning this plan? Would it not have been better to wait until someone like Professor Nolan or Dr Houlihan had said, OK, we're now through the peak? Would that have not been wiser to wait? Well, the, the, the key test that they set for 
uh, allowing for the the easing of restrictions uh, is reaching 90% coverage of uh, the vaccination for 16-year-olds and up. Mm. And we are on the cusp of achieving that. Uh, we believe that we will be there or as close to but there that, as that's makes one no metric, Minister, and that's great so. to see. It's one metric and it's yeah. great to see. And, and to be fair, I, I don't think it would be fair of anyone to say that the vaccination rollout has been anything other than a success. Yeah. And, and, and I had my doubts about it at the start and I voiced them here in this programme. I think it's been a remarkable job up and down the country. But that's not the metric I asked you about. The metric I asked you about is for someone like Dr. Dr. Holohan or Professor Nolan to say, well, we're now through the peak. Would, we not, would, it, would it not have been wiser to wait for that moment? Well, we've based the decision on their projections of uh, when we'll reach the peak and how we will then come off the peak. And, and when the do they say we'll reach the peak? Fall ahead of that. So it is likely to be uh, in October, uh, early to mid-October. It may happen earlier. There are different models. It isn't an exact science. And they've set out a range of different scenarios. And people will see in the tweets from Philip Nolan, he's gone through uh, the modelling scenarios that are yes, there. Yes. And we do so we acknowledge that the case numbers are likely to rise, even though the date in the last number of days mm. you know, has been so, so we are taking a chance here, Minister. We are taking a chance in that you've got the two metrics. One is the number of people vaccinated and we're flying at that and great. The other one is the peak. We're nowhere even near the peak if, if, if they're saying mid-October. So should we not just have waited another few weeks? Well, the truth is, uh, PJ, that nobody knows for sure. And, you know, models are what they are. They are limited by the assumptions that they make and the factors that um, uh, underpin them. And, you know, the, the truth is there is probably never going to be a perfect time. And we have made the decision based on uh, our assessment of where we're at with the vaccination program, how we expect this virus to impact on the hospital system in the next number of weeks. We are upfront that it is not risk free. Uh, there are certainly risks here. The pandemic is not over. It is there a handbrake the here? 22nd of October. Well, the government will always reserve the right to, to change course and, you know, protecting public health as best we can is always going to be the number one priority. But we also have to recognise we're 18 months into this and there are sectors of the economy that have not functioned uh, properly mm. over that time. Many of them have been fully shut uh, over that time. And, and you have heard the debates and you've had them on your own show Indeed. from the arts, culture, entertainment sector. And, you know, they are crying out to be given an opportunity to yes. trade. But I would make the point that what we're doing here is is graduated. And that's the same approach we've taken right the way through. So, you know, we have on the 6th, the certain, 6th of September, a certain uh, set of restrictions eased at, you know, 60% capacity indoor yeah. uh, at theatres and so on for vaccinated No, I don't think people. anybody is arguing and, about the fact that, that these are welcome no, moves. No one's arguing about uh, yeah, the fact and, and, that this and like Netflix are very comfortable with that. They're, okay. they're very comfortable okay. with having a significant number of people who are vaccinated indoors. Uh, and then on the 20th, you know, the, the changes there that are so important for for, for children and, ad and adults who play indoor sports or, you know, dance classes and exercise classes and so on. These things are really important for people's quality of life and mental health. And one of the issues that I think has influenced us uh, in recent times has been the evidence uh, from Paul Reid as head of the HSC, where he has told us that there yeah. is an increasing incidence of people presenting with mental health difficulties sure. and, and eating sure. disorders sure. 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 in sure. the last sure. number of weeks sure. and months. So and, we, and that, and we that, do 
have to take that into we do, account. We do, but we, are, we, are we also not taking into account, or should we take into account, the fact that A&E is almost at capacity before we anywhere, go anywhere near the peak of, of, of this, this wave? But that's, we'll, 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 we'll leave that one there and move on to what happens when everything works out, and that is the return to work for people. Um, Leo Bradker was saying last night, Minister that you kind of don't have a choice. If your boss wants you back, then you got to go back. Even if you have been doing your work very successfully from home for the last 12 to 18 months, if he wants you back, you got to go back. How is that fair? Well, first of all, we're not expecting that there will be any big bang return to work. What we're saying is that from the 20th of September, that uh, the return to, to, to the office and the office isn't the place of work for everyone. But for some people, it is that it will it will happen uh, on a phased basis. What we will do now is we will uh, engage directly with uh, the trade unions and with employers uh, through uh, a forum that we have uh, where we meet them regularly uh, on the detail of that. And we will update the, the work safety protocol and tease out with them exactly how this will work. I think we'll see a blended form of work for many people. Mm. I don't believe we're going all the way back to where we were. People won't have a right to it, which is what Minister Radker was saying last night. There, 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 there is no legal right to it if you have a contract of employment which specifies your place of work is at the office uh, then you know if you if you bring it down to brass tacks uh, unless there is a public health rule saying that uh, you shouldn't go to work then the employer can mm. uh, require you to, to attend but, but minister if you've work, been doing your true. job if you've been doing your job successfully and well and completing your tasks successfully and well for your boss for the last 18 months from the kitchen table or from the spare bedroom why should you have to face the prospect of being dragged back into the workplace when you're doing your job perfectly well from home well once public health restrictions ease i don't think it is the role of government to dictate where um, people's individual uh, employment would would take place where their work would be done but what we do expect is that employers will uh, cooperate with employees. We have heard from many employers at this stage that they are going to pursue a blended form of working, certainly in the public service and the civil service, which uh, which I have responsibility for. Uh, that is the model that we will be uh, moving towards. Right. And we're consulting with the unions on that. People will be uh, able to uh, uh, have a blended form of work where some of their working week will be at home or at a remote working hub. We recognise the benefits of that. But the government can't come in and dictate to private employers that you must allow somebody to work from home if their contract of employment says that their place of work is uh, is in the office. Okay. So we are going to have to work our way through this and uh, we have a short number of weeks now to do that and, uh, and we'll engage directly now with the unions and the employers on the detail of it. In terms of public expenditure, uh, which is your direct remit, a lot of people will lose their PUP or their PUP will be cut over the weeks to come without them necessarily having returned to work. Is that fair? Well, I think we have to recognise that you know the government, I think, has been really fair to, to people by and large, and rightly so, because people who lost their job uh, you know, did so through no fault of their own whatsoever. And uh, about 800,000 people at some point in the last 18 months uh, were on the PUP for uh, some period of time. Uh, at the peak, we had 600,000 people on it. It's now less than 150,000 and it's, it's falling all the time. I think we also have to accept that there are staff 
staff shortages in large parts of our economy and we were seeing it in Cork uh, PJ in different sectors where businesses are having to restrict their hours of trade because they can't get staff so the the changes uh, will start from uh, the 7th of September that will impact on people's payment from the following week onwards the 14th uh, onwards it is being done uh, in three steps but we have built in some additional flexibilities Mm. people who are self-employed and who are on the PUP if they come off it they will get an enterprise support grant of a thousand euro even if they already got that earlier in the process and we have what I think is a really important uh, flexibility that people who uh, are earning uh, up to 120 euro a week from work uh, can over an eight-week period earn about 960 euro and still keep their PUP so this is about about balance we've paid out eight and a half billion euro on the PUP uh, since March of 2020 it was the right thing to do but as our economy is opening up as the restrictions are eased as labour shortages are presenting uh, I think we do need to make this change and it will be done in a gradual way over the next number of months starting uh, from the 7th of September. Could it be that one of the reasons for those labour shortages is that a lot of people are now realising how badly they're actually paid and that going back to work won't pay them? I think that is uh, is certainly a factor. We are seeing labour shortages you know, throughout uh, large parts of the developed world and in certain sectors. And I think it is true to say that for, you know, uh, for many people, um, you know, there, there, there have been some positives from COVID in, in relation to lifestyle and, you know, being able to spend more time uh, in your own community, in your own home, with your own family, being able to, to exercise and uh, and get outdoors more. So I think a lot of people have probably had a change of mindset uh, and may not want to go back to their old job and their old career. Uh, and I think that is certainly a factor. And we do need to consider that into the future. But the truth is that right now, we do have in retail, in hospitality, in the care sector, in construction, we have labour shortages. Okay. So it does then raise the question, should we continue to pay some people €350 Euro a week, while other people uh, who lost their job immediately before the pandemic are on €203 Euro per week? There is a real question of fairness there as well. OK. Two last ones for you, Minister. First of all, it's on schools. Um, people are wondering, that we, 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 we read... Uh, earlier in the week that Neffert and Hikwa were discussing the possibility of mandatory masks for under 12, children under 12. Where are we going with that or do you know? My understanding is that, that HICWA have provided advice to NEFIT. Uh, they've looked into it and they have concluded that uh, that we should not do it. Uh, and NEFIT now will report to the Minister for Health. So is um, it off the it, table not, then? I, 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 I don't see it happening. Uh, I wouldn't be comfortable with it, I have to say. Yeah, you, you've got what? I think, you've got some kids going to school yourself. Would you be comfortable with your, with your smallies wearing masks? I think it would be really difficult for them. I mean, secondary school children uh, are, are doing it, as you know, and it's not easy to have a mask on all day. And look, of course, many people are doing it in their workplace, including teachers all day. Um, but it is harder for, for kids generally. Mm. And uh, it's something so, I wouldn't so like you, to see you happen. Don't necessarily, we're, we're, you don't see it happening based on what Hikwa has I, come back with? I, I, I don't see it happening. Okay. I mean, we're, we're, we're at a stage in all of this where we're easing restrictions. I mean, that would be a major change to turn around and, and uh, require children in primary school for, you know, six okay. hours a day or whatever to wear a mask. When will kids I, be allowed to have lockers then? When will they, is it? Yeah, because they're not allowed lockers in a lot of places yet. Uh, I, I mean, I think 
the, the truth is that once we get over the 22nd of October, you will see uh, all of these kinds of issues being reviewed and, you know, all going well. Uh, we will be heading back towards towards okay. a new normal. Some things will be different. We will still be wearing masks, as you said earlier, and public transport uh, in our shops and healthcare settings and so on. For how but long might that just, be? Uh, I think that will be for probably many months further. I think we do have to strike a note of caution. And if you just allow me to just make the point to people that while we're easing restrictions, it by no means means that, that all of this is over. The virus isn't going away. We are moving now towards living with this mm -hmm. because 90% of people or so are vaccinated, more than 90% of people uh, in Cork. Uh, but uh, it, it is still a dangerous virus and we are all going to have to now just exercise personal responsibility okay. as so many people have been doing since March of last year. Uh, but the, the threat and the risk is still there. And I think people will make their own decisions uh, in their own lives, knowing so much more as we do now compared to a year and a half ago about how this virus works. And um, I think we're, we're moving to a new phase, but okay. but it, it isn't over. But I think people are getting a lot of freedoms back and, and we trust people. We trust people to uh, to act responsibly as in the main, the overwhelming majority of people have have, had, have done so right from the beginning. Lastly, and you and Pascal Donoghue will sit down over the next few weeks to finalise the budget and that will be presented in early October, Minister. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of debt as a result of this. And we know what happened the last time that the country had a lot of debt as a result of a crisis. We know what happened. Austerity, extra taxes, USCs, all that kind of thing. Are we facing down the barrel of another bout of austerity to get us out of this? I don't believe so. I think You don't believe we, so or we're not? Uh, we're not. Uh, we do have to manage the public finances sensibly. Uh, the budget will be produced in uh, six weeks' time on the 12th of October. But we did in July get approval from government for a really important document uh, which sets out out to 2025 what uh, the plans are for the Irish economy, for the management of the public finances. And we can make sensible decisions here that will still have uh, moderate expenditure growth so we can avoid anything like the kind of decisions that had to be made after the last crisis uh, of a decade mm. uh, ago or so. Uh, but it does mean that the exceptional COVID emergency spending is going to have to be unwound. And like sure. we spoke about one and, of those and, decisions and paid earlier for, on. And paid for. So taxes and cutbacks off the table or should we expect them? Extra taxes I mean, government, and cutbacks. Government will always keep its options open uh, coming up to, to budget time, but they're, uh, we're not heading towards austerity. Like while our national debt has uh, increased and will continue to increase further, uh, we are benefiting from an environment uh, in the markets mm -hmm. and the role of the European Central Bank has been important. We can borrow at historic low interest rates. We have availed of uh, long maturities. We have refinanced a large amount of debt. So we don't face any major refinancing cliffs in the next number of years. So even though our debt has uh, risen, the cost of servicing that, the amount we're paying out in interest is actually falling. Okay. Now that won't last forever. Yeah. And that's why we have to close the budget deficit. And the plan that we agreed in July shows how we will do that and reduce our budget deficit from, let's say, around 5% of, of economic output last year uh, to uh, over 1% by 2024, 2025. We 
have the plan to do that, we can do that without austerity, but it does mean unwinding that exceptional expenditure. If we keep that going, then we have to raise revenues to pay for it. So that's why these decisions are important. Okay, look forward to speaking with you around budget time. Minister Mike McGrath, thank you for being with us this morning to discuss the latest reopening plan. Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform and a member of the COVID Committee of Cabinet, Michael McGrath. Kids did okay with homeschool. So if they decided to stay at home, would you agree with that? It's safe to If it's safe to go to work, people should go, says Sarah from Middleton. Kevin on Twitter says, Ah, you got a laugh. Listening to Leo forcing people back to the office to save coffee shops. Then listen to the CUH A&E story. It's idiotic. A&E at record levels. We've not even opened yet. Kids back in school. The number's going to skyrocket. Not just the added new COVID cases, but hey, get back to the office or you're fired. Uh, Marion says this is going to put the vulnerable people back into lockdown again. As a vulnerable person, I believe the booster shots should be given out to us before any full reopening. I don't trust this at all. Once again, the sick and the vulnerable are not being considered. And we're mostly the people suffering from social anxiety as well. This isn't helping. We're still not safe. and The vaccines are starting to weaken. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Fully focused, what do you mean? Got my eyes on a prize, that's me. Manchester City are the champions. Number one, that's top of the league. The best football league in the world is right here. Firmino with the flick. Shut Fernandez, he's going to go for goal. Oh, what a goal. The Premier League Live, powered by Talk Sport. Join me, Trevor Welch, exclusively online at 96fm.ie. Tune in Saturdays as we ramp up the excitement for the day's biggest games. We'll bring you pre-match analysis, live commentary and in-depth interviews with some legends of the sport. The Premier League Live. With now. Join in the experience with a Now Sports or Sports Extra membership. Listen every Saturday exclusively online at 96fm.ie or download the Corks 96fm app. Corks 96fm. Come back to all of this a little bit later on. Uh, There's stuff coming in about the interview with Michael McGrath. I... I have to say I don't believe there won't be austerity. I don't believe it. I think he doesn't want... (laughs) <laughs> to put any austerity on us. But I fear dreadfully that we'll be taxed at some point to pay for the debts of the last year and a half. I hope not. There's nothing in the world I'd rather be wrong about, but um, but I doubt it somehow. 1850 mentioned during the week that a number of things pop up every year when it comes to back to school. One is the cost, and we'll discuss more about that a bit later on. The other is transport. School transport. Tina, good morning to you. Good morning. And as if by prediction you land in my lap, what's your problem with transport? School transport. I have two young boys um, with me. They both attend the same school. And both have medical cards. And due to the cyber attack, um, verification of medical cards has been difficult for some departments and especially school transport. Mm. So when the portal opened to apply for school transport, one of our boys was already in the system. The second boy 
I applied for his transport and I was told that they couldn't access the medical card system. I then went to pay for the ticket. The system on Bus Aaron crashed. So I wasn't able to apply for the ticket before the deadline. The portal then opened again on the 20th of August and by that point the medical card had been issued, had been sorted. Right. I was then informed he's eligible but there no, are no seats available due to the COVID problem. God. Now, the children, they live together, they attend the same school, there is a 55-seater coach that takes these pupils to one school. They're not not going to different schools. They're going to the same school. Mm. I <clears throat> I queried it with Buzz Aaron, and they said, again, due to COVID, there are no seats available. But, but that, so, that should change from today now, Tina, because no, the public transport is back to normal. No, it isn't. Yesterday, I spoke to the health minister's office to ask, due to the fact that public transport is opening 100%, what about school transport? They have no idea what is happening with school transport. So last night, when all of the buses were in the garage, having the yellow stickers taken off the seats, yes, in preparation for this morning and topping up the hand sanitizer in preparation for this morning and cleaning down the bus, nothing was happening to the school buses? No. There are 29 pupils on a 55-seater coach going to one school. I queried, could these boys sit on the same seat as they live together in a bubble? And at one point I was told... Due to the fact that these boys have different surnames, they may not be classed as siblings to be able to share a seat. Oh, oh, oh God. Right. Yeah. So, if our youngsters... Was the person, are, clearly the person you were speaking with to, to give them their due, was helpful enough. Very helpful. Did, did they give they, you any idea when... The school buses might return to... No, there is nothing. um, They went on to their own website. There is nothing on the Health Minister's Office website to state when when there's going to be 100% capacity on school transport. You can't contact Bus Aaron to ask about it or to find out when the tickets are going to be available. At the moment, one child has to go on the school transport because he would lose his seat if he doesn't, that I've been advised of. I'm driving 30 minutes into the town, 30 minutes back, twice daily. So hold on here now, Tina. You're putting one lad on the bus. Yes. And you're driving another lad to the same school. Yes. Right. And in between those times, I've got to drop a special needs child to her transport. Okay. 
Well, I, I, it, I, if I had had the minister still on air, I would have asked him about school transport because I would have thought, and hey, I'm just, I'm just an, an idiot on the radio, but I would have thought that public transport was public transport and that the school bus was part of the public transport system. Yes. And you'd be forgiven for that, wouldn't you? You would. You would assume that transport is transport, but apparently um, it, it was said, and I'm not disrespecting anyone at all, but Norma Foley gave a live interview where she said it is vital for our children to be into education. And I agree 100%. Our children, they've had enough over the last 18 months. They need to be in full-time education. If it is safe for our children to be in these schools, where... where Why isn't it safe for them to go on the bus? Yeah. And I've spoken to her office as well and cannot get any answers from anyone what to do about it. Okay. Tina, I'm going to leave it with you for today. Thank you for that. Two boys uh, going on the bus to the same school. Both entitled to a seat on the bus. Only one can get on the bus because the bus is now full. Half full. But as of this morning, the bus you took to town to go to work or go to the market or go to whatever, that's 100% capacity as of this morning. But another element of public transport, namely the school buses, well, that's not yet. And nobody knows when. 1857 The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850 715 On Cork's 96FM. So we talked to Tina about back to school and one of the problems that she's facing with public transport. We've also talked repeatedly in the last week, and it comes up every single September and August, the cost of going back to school. We're going to go look at that in a bit of detail in a wee while. But first of all, Fiona, you actually have what a seven and a four-year-old. Yes. How much are you laying out? Um, I did a quick uh, estimate there, PJ. It's about €430 this year. That includes uh, milk money, books, the book rental scheme, which is, in fairness, a really good idea. Um, And it's uniforms for both, tracksuit for the the second fellow who's in uh, first class, and shoes and runners and all of that. And And that's so far. That's so far. And that doesn't include uh, the voluntary contribution. And next year, the four-year-old would be going to, uh, I don't know, it's usually about 50, 100. Um, and next year then the the four year old will be going into junior infants so we'll also have the books on top of that as well Um, So, and like you know PJ I'm very much aware that myself and my husband are both in good jobs and we can afford it but there are so many families out there who just can't afford it yeah yeah and that's and that's where we want to bring in uh, Paddy O'Flynn from the Society of St. Vincent de Paul who issued a press release this week saying they're taking almost 300 calls a day from people struggling with the cost of back to school. So there's Fiona's bill with two small children. Paddy is going to go well over 500, maybe close to 600 by the time they're done. They can afford it, but so many can't. Good morning. Good morning, uh, PJ. How are you? Very well, thank you. You're inundated with, with requests for help. 
Well, I'm referring, I mean, the press release was a national press, press release. My, my, uh, Paddy, are you on speakerphone by any chance? If you are, could you pick um, up the handset? Yeah. Are you on speaker? Yes. Could you pick up the handset, possibly? Hello, is that better? That's much better now, yeah. Yeah, well, look, I'm responsible for the South West, and uh, I presume you want to talk about Cork. Yes, indeed. More than anything else, given your programme reach. Um, yeah, we're, like, we deal with requests for help with back to school every year. But this year, the requests are up about, <clears throat> from the beginning of August, up about 30%, 15% on last year. Um, and um, just listening to the previous caller, I mean, her bill is reasonably modest compared to other people and obviously well can afford it. But we're dealing with a tranche of people who, for various reasons, are... Um, come from, from a different kind of background and uh, our, whose means are stretched. And um, we're finding a huge demand this year for all of the back-to-school items that we've just been mentioning. Yeah. Um, and this year, it's up by about 15%, as I said. But, like, we give all the advice we can. We help people with school uniforms by providing vouchers to the specialty shops which provide those uniforms. We help with books. Uh, we help with digital equipment, which is becoming more and more of a need as you go into secondary school mm-hmm. and up the classes towards Leaving Cert, which is something new and something which we're asking the government to look at in our, in our press release. Because okay, the devices are, are not, they are, they're not and, cheap. Yeah, and iPads and, 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 and tablets are necessary and they're beyond the reach of a lot of the people we look after. <clears throat> Voluntary contributions are another issue. In many cases, they're well over €100. Euro. And that's a misnomer. They're not really voluntary uh, at all, not, are they? They're not voluntary, but, but equally, they're not mandatory. And we advise, people, we, we, we advise people carefully that they are mandatory. And in some cases where there's a bit of pressure put on parents, we do actually advocate with the schools successfully in a lot of cases when we make the case on behalf of parents. So that's the kind of what's happening, what we're experiencing in the greater Cork area at the moment. There is another background issue, which is exacerbating the thing very much this year, unique to this year, and that is the whole question of uh, utility costs. Gas is up 2%, electricity is up 9% since June, but these utility companies had a moratorium on on bills, on bill payments through the pandemic. That was ended in June, and unfortunately, we had some. We, we're now dealing with some people who allow the bills to run up, and they're coming to us now in panic. Yeah, we we meet people. We come across people with bills of uh, anything from a thousand to nineteen hundred, with immediate threats of disconnection. We yeah. advocate. We do two things there. We, we we as long as they agree with our proposals, we try to negotiate on their behalf. Yes. We help them with initial payments to ward off the evil day. Uh, in the past, we fell back on um, advocating, uh, helping them to get pay-as-you-go meters. But this year, because of the pandemic, there's a backlog of requests to ins- for the installation of pay-as-you-go meters of anything from six to nine months. Frankly. So that's p- causing panic, you know? Yeah. Penny. You have a pre-budget submission to the government. In, in, in one minute, what does the government need to do for the families affected in the way you speak to me? They need to prioritise investment 
to address educational disadvantage. That's the simplest way I can put it. I've been describing to you the people we help, they are disadvantaged, disadvantaged for various reasons. And we want the government to look at a whole range of, of, of investments. The totality of the investment by the government in education has been sadly lacking um, inflation since 2010. Uh, our budget submission provides detailed analysis on that. So that's, that's our fundamental plank to the government for its uh, 2022 budget in October. Okay, to invest in the cost and allaying the cost of school and education. Paddy, thank you very much. Paddy O'Flynn from St. Vincent de Paul. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie. The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. Carlos says, I thought the interview with Minister Michael McGrath was balanced and informative. Why did PJ have to put such a downer on what he said about austerity? He's speaking from his knowledge of things as they stand. We all understand there could be some kind of shock. Why didn't you just say, we will wait and see? Caller, I did say that. I did say that. And I said I would, there's nothing I'd rather more to be wrong about in thinking that some form of austerity may come. But I've been around the block a couple of times too many at this stage to just accept that it's not going to happen. So I would, I hope against hope, and I'll be the saddest man in the room. Trust me, I'm paying enough flipping tax as it is every month without more. So I'm the last guy who wants to see any kind of austerity. And to be fair to Minister McGrath, he is a management accountant by profession. He takes a set of figures put in front of him and he makes an informed decision, possibly more informed than other ministers who've held offices like him because he actually has a bit of financial smarts behind it. So I hope to goodness that he's right. I really, really do hope that he's right. Paul says, I'm fed up with this constant nonsense, PJ, from hospitality that they have staff shortages. I have over 20 years' experience in hospitality. I'm sending out CVs left, right and centre, but nothing, not even a phone call. They can't be that stuck. I haven't worked since March of last year. See, there's that too. Donal wants to know, uh, from the Cove Darts community, he wants to know, does anyone know what will happen with darts and card drives? Anybody know? To the best of understanding the, the latest set of proposals, Donal, and what happens after the announcement is made is generally on gov.ie a document will go up with all of the minute detail as they say, the devil is in the detail I don't have that to my hand just yet, but maybe tomorrow we'll know for sure, but I think I think that your uh, darts and your card drives I think they should start up in October, or the 20th of September, one of the two We'll see. I <laughs> see. It's, it's it's uncertain for now, but maybe that document will tell us more. But certainly they're coming back in the next few weeks. And on Tina's situation with the school bus, an absolute joke, says this WhatsApp message. The lack of communication between public and private sectors. Who is signing off these things? 
that it's a disgrace that Tina in 2021 can't put two siblings on a bus. Can she not, as their guardian, give a letter stating who they are, have it signed by a guard? Old-fashioned red tape is crippling parents and adding unnecessary stress to our citizens. That was a rather irate caller. It often happens also when a parent rings the school for two friends to be in the same class. The other parent often rings to say she wants her child in a different one. (laughs) There's a totally unrelated education comment, but thank you. 1850-715-996. I want to read you a brief passage from the first opening pages of a new book. And it reads like this. 38-year-old Fiacre Daly was a hard-working family man. He loved his partner, Stephanie Meehan, and their two young children, Oshin and Cerise. He had a good job with DGM, installing gas boilers. He worked long hours, often coming home well after 8 o'clock. According to Stephanie, he was the kind of man who believed you should get out of life what you put into it. But since the problems had started to emerge in their apartment in Priory Hall some years earlier, Fiacre felt he wasn't getting what he should have gotten. And that is just the passage that follows a description of Fiacre's partner finding his body after he took his own life. It is the opening and the very strong opening passage of a book called Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger, written by Sinn Féin housing spokesman Owen O'Brien. Owen, good morning to you. Good morning, Jay. How are you? Good. Congratulations on a very interesting and upsetting read at times. Uh, You focus on a lot of personal stuff, particularly in the early pages of the book, setting up a number of people directly affected by some terribly defective building stories. And then you proceed to tell us how it happened. The question I'm asking is, could it happen again? But let's go on by how it happened first. Sure, and I suppose that to say one of the reasons why why I spent so much time uh, uh, talking about those families and 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 they were very generous with the time, and particularly Stephanie, me, and given what she and her her children have gone through, is because I think it's really important that people understand the human cost of bad building, um, and obviously the, the tragic suicide of Fakra Daly two years into the Priory Hall scandal is the most extreme. But we know from from looking at television and 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 social media. Families in, in County Clare, in Mayo, in, in Donegal and elsewhere, literally with homes crumbling around them because of defective block. Uh, and right across the country, including in Cork, uh, apartments and duplexes built with significant fire safety defects. This isn't just a question of money. This is a question of the quality of people's lives and, and in Fiacre Daly's case, his life itself. So uh, I suppose I want to thank those families, uh, one family in, in Clare and Shannon, another family in Donegal and four families in Dublin for sharing all of that with us. I, I suppose that the straight answer is is we know a, a lot about the developers who are responsible for these bad developments because it's been very widely covered in the newspapers. But in addition to going back through that uh, story, I wanted to tell the political story of who were the politicians um, uh, who put in place the building control regime to enforce or, in, as the case was, not enforce the building standards, particularly during the Celtic Tiger era, but also who are the politicians and also who are the other organisations and individuals who sounded the alarm bells uh, while that building control regime was being put in place and urged government of the day, particularly the Fianna Gael Labour government uh, of the mid-80s and the Fianna Fáil government of the late 80s, early 90s, not to do what they subsequently did. Uh, and there's a very long section of the book which really tells the story of what's called the Building Control Act. 
mm. um, how how uh, first under uh, and again in Labour and then under Fianna Fáil, a piece of legislation that remarkably took almost a decade to pass basically went from an argument for independent local authority-led inspections to ensure buildings were built properly to the system that we then had, uh, to again in Labour, to complete mm. self-certification. It, it was light touch. Certify Very much light soldiers. touch. And, and I, mean, I was only in Donegal on, on holidays recently, on, and I, I deliberately sought out, um, just driving around, you'll see them from a very short distance away, a house infected by mica. It's horrible. They're falling to bits. And and those families have been experiencing the the gradual deterioration of their homes from about 2008. So the cracks first started to emerge 2006, 2008. By 2010, 11, the families realised that these weren't standard settling cracks, that there was something structural. But it has taken them till now uh, uh, for... uh, uh, the public, the wider public to understand the problem. And even the redress scheme that was agreed in principle in 2018, 2019 by government and open to applications in 2020 is very clearly not fit for purpose, which is why, of course, there's been all those uh, uh, mobilisations in Donegal and Mayo and Clare, as well as the big march over the summer uh, in, mm. in Dublin. They're looking for 100% redress. Will they ever get so it? What they're, what they're looking for is exactly what the, the families who, who live in Leinster uh, got with Pyrite in the foundations, which is 100% redress, the state guarantee, but also for the scheme to be managed centrally by the housing agency so that it's not left to individual homeowners to have to do all this work themselves. And they have to get it. Uh, um, it's the only way to resolve this issue. Uh, and it's the only way for fairness because while it took them two years of hard campaigning, the Priory Hall residents eventually got 100% redress. Uh, again, with the pyrite in the foundations, it took those families a very long period of time to campaign and they got it. But for families today either living in properties with defective block on the western seaboard or families living in predominantly apartments and duplexes in our cities and larger towns for safety defects. I mean, they didn't cause these defects. They bought homes in good faith, paid very large sums of money, in many cases are paying large mortgages and management fees. And, and you know, the basic principle, which is if you go and buy anything in the shop today and you take it home and it's defective, you go back to the shop tomorrow and you get it replaced or, or you get a refund. The only purchase of your life where that principle does not apply is the single biggest purchase of your life, which is your family home. And therefore, we really need not only to acknowledge the fact that both the state through its own negligence and industry through its own bad practice is responsible for this and therefore have to put the bill. Exactly as you said at the start of this interview, we have to make sure this can never happen again. And unfortunately, there have been no reforms of the uh, enforcement of regulations for building products, for example, despite the scandal mm. of Pyrite and MICA. Uh, and the reforms that were introduced in terms of building control of the, the process of constructing homes yeah. uh, uh, put in place by Phil Holder in 2014, uh, it was very, very weak. And we are beginning to see a new development, significant fire safety and Frankly. other construction problems. So in other words, what you're saying is it, it is still going on, which I did a little bit of work at home in the last year or so and uh, at times I got a chance to talk to the builders and and the engineers and they were telling me about the the restrictions and the regulations now and it kind of led me to when I as I sat down with your book well the things the lads were telling me about my own little bit of work surely surely these things can't happen again well look the first thing I want to say is is the reforms that were put in place by Phil Hogan in 2014 did change the situation in terms of the billing process um, and there are lots and lots of good builders 
uh, contractors, architects and material suppliers out there building really good quality homes, right? So I, I, I'm not in the business here of, of fear-mongering. But what I can say is, and I deal with this near the end of the book, I get a lot of people coming to me who are involved in industry. They could be architects, they could be building control officers in local authorities, uh, or they could be material suppliers and in, say, insulation of fire safety. And in recent years, they've been saying, as we're getting back to increased uh, residential construction, they're starting to see worrying signs. They're not saying it's on the scale or as widespread as it was during the County Tiger, but they're sounding an alarm bell at the very early stage. And for example, I wrote uh, after uh, being contacted by four different individuals in different sectors of industry, I wrote to the then Minister Owen Murphy, uh, as well as folks involved in his department of the Building Control Office, highlighting these concerns and saying, look, I have no idea if these are one-off, if these are widespread, but surely it would be better to examine this now rather than wait till it's too late. And I never even got a reply from the Minister. Uh, we authored a report in the Oireachtas Housing Committee back in 2018. I wrote the report, but the committee unanimously agreed it following some amendments. Well, we made a whole series of recommendations to government, both in terms of 100% redress for families with defective homes, but also further reforms to ensure our building control pro- system is fit for purpose and again no government has acted on those the current government does reference that report in the program for government but but no work has taken place on on that to date so i suppose the purpose of writing this book really is saying look here's what happened happened in the past here's how it happened why it happened who was responsible the impact on families but the really important message of the book is is not only should we compensate those families for defects they weren't responsible for but Given that we are now about to enter a, a increased period of residential construction, hopefully with very large volumes of social and affordable homes to tackle the housing crisis, let's make sure we have the best possible building control system. Uh, and one of the key ways to do that is ensure fully independent inspections of building work uh, rather than the improved self-certification that we still have because developers still ultimately employ the certifiers yeah. who are certifying their works. And while many of those certifiers are incredibly professional and have huge integrity, we are beginning to see signs of some poor and shoddy practice. And best way to avoid that is have fully independent inspections to ensure that no matter what's been so, built, a one-off house, a housing estate, a school, a library, a factory, uh, or an office block is built in full compliance with uh, the building control regulations. What, 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 you say, what you're saying is, I think, Owen, that even though things have changed a bit, you still could have shoddy workmanship and people getting away with it because there's still too much self-regulation going on and that that's more or less it, isn't it? But but also crucially, I mean, there's and it's been widely reported in the news and I, I talk about it at the end of the book, in my own constituency, uh, there was an old gym, uh, a Ben Dunn gym, uh, that has been refurbished into 48 apartments by a developer. Every single planning and building control rule has been broken and we all know that, uh, the local authority his planning department is involved in planning enforcement and control enforcement. But that building has been occupied uh, uh, by rental tenants, including many HAP and homeless HAP tenants, and therefore the taxpayers are paying the bill. Uh, and yet it is not compliant with either the building regulations or with planning. Uh, and it's been occupied for over two years. And, you know, unless very significant enforcement and legal action is taken against that developer, that's in a signal to every potential cowboy builder and developer, architect and building supplier out there that, you know what, the rule changes in 2014, they're fine for those people who are going to abide by them, but we don't have to. We can get away with it just like we did in the past. And that's not acceptable. Given the level of risk uh, a bad building uh, can create uh, for people in terms of their safety, uh, uh, their well-being, uh, and also obviously their household finances. Mm. You're very specific about that, about that particular building, Owen. Um, so, 
clearly, clearly, you've 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 done your background on it, and and it has failed every every inspection. Well, absolutely, and 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 for example, I'm in, in constant written correspondence with the the planning department of the local authority. Uh, uh, but but here you have a building that was uh, built without planning permission or refurbished without planning permission, fully tenanted, not a single uh, a certificate of compliance for disability or fire or completion uh, was submitted. Uh, uh, the developer has submitted all of that in residential tenancies board hearings that I was actually a witness at uh, in, in related cases. Uh, and if you if you allow a new building to be occupied without a completion certificate. That is a criminal offence under the law. Uh, that can carry a maximum of €10,000 fine uh, and a period of time in, in prison. Uh, and therefore, the question has to be asked, how is it possible for a developer uh, to build without planning permission, to not comply with building control certification processes, to fully tenant, have large numbers of those tenants have the rent paid by the taxpayer, and that's no criticism of the tenants at all. Uh, they're just yeah, yeah. They're trying to put a roof over their heads. And yet the local authority is still involved in a protracted enforcement action that hasn't produced any level of compliance. Right. Okay. So I suppose for me, it's, it's about saying, look, the, the, the building control system we have, while better than before, could be even better again. Right. And of course, we've had no reforms of the enforcement of building products, particularly block uh, uh, and quarrying of the material for blocks. So those things all need to be dealt with. Again, in the book, I outline in some detail what those reforms should look like. Okay. Just lastly, in terms of the, the news of the past 24 hours, I was talking to the Minister for Public Expenditure this morning, and I asked, of course, he sits on the uh, Cabinet COVID committee. Might it have been more prudent, do you think, does Sinn Féin think, Owen, might it have been more prudent to wait until the third wave, as we call it, had subsided and the modellers had told us it had subsided before opening up? Well, no, I think, I mean, in, in broad terms, I think what the government has announced yesterday is welcome. There, there's obviously some metrics included in that. So for the October 22nd date uh, 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 to be to be met as per the plan, we have to have reached a certain level of vaccination, etc. Look, I think what people want at this point is, is they want to know the exit plan. They, they want clarity and certainty. And we also then need to know what the rest of us have to do to be able to meet that. There are areas that we still need certainty. Uh, so, for example, those people who aren't able to go back uh, uh, to uh, 100% uh, uh, employment, we still need to ensure that there are supports there. So uh, government needs to rethink the imminent uh, wind down and withdrawal of the pandemic unemployment payment, particularly for people in hospitality, tourism and live entertainment. We still have the scandal, for example, of partners not being able to enter into maternity wards uh, uh, um, yeah. at crucial periods of, of the birth. And there are other aspects in terms of schools, office reopening, that we do need greater clarity. Uh, but I think what people want to see is what the plan is, what the metrics are. And then government has to live up to its side of, of the bargain and the rest of us then have to follow suit. So, you know, broadly speaking, and you'll have heard Mary Lee MacDonald yesterday on, on the 6-1 News, we welcome the plan, but we do need further clarification. And crucially, for those people in those sectors who are not able to go back to 100% capacity employment, most people should not be abandoned to job seekers allowance or partial JSA. We need to continue the pandemic supports. We can afford them. It's short-term borrowing mm. uh, to get us through the last few months of this, and there's no reason why it shouldn't happen. Okay, leave it there. Thank you very much. That's Owen O'Brien, uh, Sinn Féin's housing spokesman and the author of a book called Defects, Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger. Uh, quite a detailed book. It starts with very personal stories, but moves on to policy. Policy can be a bit turgid, but go through it and you'll, 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 
you'll see the point he's making. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. Cork's 96FM. We've talked in the last... uh, couple of months and in fact in the year we've talked twice to both of them to uh, both Effie Murphy who went to Turkey um, for uh, weight loss surgery and she's had a couple of trips over and back. We spoke also to Leah Punch who went to Lithuania and again she's been a couple of times also uh, to Lithuania for both her surgery and the follow-up surgery and there's no doubt about it, there's quite a number of people, I think we spoke to others as well, quite a number of people who've gone overseas for weight loss surgery. Story in the Irish Times earlier this week, very stark, says it's only a matter of time before a patient dies from complications of weight loss surgery in unregulated foreign clinics. This is according to the only full-time bariatric surgeon in the health service executive her name is Dr. Helen Heenahan. She's connected to St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin and she joins me now. Professor, good morning to you. Good morning. That's a very stark warning and as I said in my introduction in relation to women in particular and others that I've spoken to many times on the programme, I think what you're doing is sounding a warning to people considering this process. Uh, In one sense, yes, um, we send a warning, I suppose, to people to consider their, I understand why people go abroad is probably the first thing to say, because they are choosing to have a treatment for obesity that is proven to be very effective clinically um, in terms of the. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
effect on obesity. So it is very significant, achieves very significant weight loss for the long term and a lot of health benefits like diabetes remission, improvement in heart problems, including high blood pressure, cholesterol and heart disease and a reduction in cancer risk. So people are seeking an excellent treatment for obesity, but it, um, every surgery comes with a risk. And although these are very safe operations, they're safe when performed in, in, in I suppose, reputable centres that uh, conduct the service in under uh, a multidisciplinary team, under the umbrella of a multidisciplinary team input. And without all of those supports, the surgery can be less safe and the patient can get a less, um, can put themselves at risk of complications both in the short term and the long term. So certainly this is a service we can provide in Ireland but we are doing our patients in Ireland who need the service a disservice because we're, we don't have an accessible service. There's mm. over near near a six year wait for, for our service in St. Columkills yeah. and St. Vincent's Hospital which is the National Weight Management Centre in Ireland. Mm. There's a service in Galway that's even more underfunded than ours and they're the only two publicly available centres for weight management in Ireland. Um, so with such long waiting lists, I absolutely understand why people choose to go abroad. But my advice would be um, that they should really consider strongly their decision, look into the, um, I suppose, the the regulation of that clinic, the governance of it, the you know their outcomes, um, and make sure that they have pre-operative education about what they're undergoing and post-op follow-up. I see a lot where people go over. And firstly, the other thing I'd say is that I feel from the patients I see back who get really horrible problems um, from of all, all types of problems from nutritional through to surgical technical complications often the patients don't meet the criteria for surgery so patient selection is key not mm. everybody is suited to this surgery um, and there's other obesity treatments for like medic there's medications that can help diet and lifestyle therapies so what we do well is select patients really well and support them both pre mm. and post-operatively that in terms of selection outcome. and assessment what 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 is the process i mean if if i have a a serious weight problem that I can't bring under control. What? How do you assess whether or not I'm a candidate for one of these surgeries? It's an excellent question. There's a number of parameters that um, are used to select the person. Um, and again, like any surgery, it has to be done on the right patient, um, you know, the right operation, the right person at the right time. Um, so, you know, not age is not a criterion. So, you know, we do these surgeries anywhere in certainly in St. Vincent's Hospital between 18 and, you know, into people's 80s. There's different reasons why people may want or benefit from surgery. But the right person has a BMI. So that's the relationship of your weight and height of over 35 in addition to a health problem related to weight. So there are over 200 health conditions related to weight. So often people will have at least one when their BMI is at 35 or above. But it's not it's not unusual to see somebody who's completely healthy with a BMI of 35. Uh, for example, a very athletic uh, person, um, you know, perhaps a rugby player who, mm. who may have a significant muscle mass. So it's not just based on weight, but weight alone can be a, a factor. So BMI over 40, for example, without any health problem uh, would be an eligibility criteria for this surgery. Um, and they're chosen because that's where the benefits of the operations outweigh the risks. Mm. Um, and that's where good can come from doing these surgeries once they're done safely. But it is also really important that people have tried to lose weight through other less risky means. So in our clinics, we may, we people go through somewhere between you know six, six months and two years of trying other methods to see if we can avoid patients having to undergo a surgery that although 
can be life saving and life changing. There's other ways that we can achieve, you know, similar results for the right person. And the other really important aspects of preparation are psychology assessment. So this is to change someone's relationship with food can be, you know, really significant, have a significant impact. And if you do that in the wrong on a person who's not prepared for that or, you know, not at the right time in their life, then it can be detrimental. So that that, that was the next question in, in my mind. A psychological assessment must be key. Like you could imagine, and I, I'm be very careful how I say this, that somebody who has who goes abroad for surgery without proper assessment could it be a risk, uh, Dr. Hinehan, that they are seeking a surgical answer to what is a psychological disorder? Yeah, in in one sense, I suppose I don't. Obesity isn't a psychological disease. That's one thing to be very clear no, on. But no, nonetheless, but it could be many, the result of a psychological issue. It can be. It can be the result of medications for psychological, psychiatric issues. The causes of of obesity are multifactorial. But nonetheless, once it exists and it's complicated by other health problems, treating it is of benefit to the patient, regardless of what psychological comorbidity they have. The important thing is that psychological comorbidity is assessed and dealt with. So most psychological, every psychological comorbidity is treatable. And it's certainly not a contraindication to this surgery as long as it has been assessed by a psychologist a clinical psychologist, preferably somebody with bariatric experience, um, and that that patient is as best prepared and in a very stable state um, and has lots of, you know, good coping resources other than through food, um, mm. you know, that, that that isn't a part of their psychological comorbidity. So mm. it doesn't rule somebody out having a psychological uh, comorbidity or, or disease as long as it's well assessed and well treated. Mm. Um, and in fact, there's a lot of evidence that psychological co- burden, the comorbidity uh, improves after bariatric bariatric surgery through improvements in health and well-being and quality of life. The people that I've spoken to that have gone for these surgeries are healthy and happy. They tell me, they say they're, they never felt as good. But you and your colleagues are seeing people with horrible complications on quite a frequent basis now. Yes, and, and there has been um, a dramatic increase over the last, it seems to me, 12 to 18 months in particular. Like these problems, we've always we've always had dealt with a legacy of problems from people going abroad for, for this type of surgery. And I know my plastic surgical colleagues see um, the consequences of people going abroad for cosmetic surgeries as well. Uh, but pertaining to bariatric surgery, it has definitely increased in the last 12 to 18 months. What so kind of things sure. do you see? So we see a range of complications and again from patients often poorly prepared where actually they just didn't know how to eat and and live with this surgery afterwards. So they get some pain, nausea, vomiting just from not being educated well enough on how to eat afterwards and when to transition to normal food. There is a um, a weaning process you go through after after surgery over somewhere between a six and 12 week period. And they're the easiest, I suppose, simplest things to resolve to make sure there's no technical or mechanical problem with the way the surgery was done but we do see those unfortunately we see some devastating complications like intra-abdominal infections where some of the stomach that was stitched or stapled through didn't heal properly uh, and that that patient is in for a long hospital stay to try and resolve that problem and it may need a further surgery about 60 percent of patients who come to st vincent's need surgical solutions to their problem um, and often we see just terrible malnutrition because um, patients, uh, you know, this is a more long term side effect, didn't know that they're supposed to take a vitamin regime daily for life after this surgery to make sure they don't get malnourished, mm. which would impact the weight loss outcome, but more also their nutritional health. 
Um, so there are many types of complications. Um, and in a good centre, you know, the, a, a, an accredited centre like ours, we do everything to implement the well-known and accepted international guidelines on how to keep people well after this types of surgery yeah. that involves not just a surgeon, but dietitian, psychologist, physiotherapist, nursing staff, um, and a clinician as well. Now, the IRA, uh, the, the, the eyebrow-raising element of the article that I read in the last few, few days, uh, Doctor, is that you are the only surgeon in the health service doing this work full-time. Yes, yeah, uh, publicly. And there's a number of surgeons who have the skill set to do this in the country. There's a number of upper GI surgeons really well skilled and able to do this surgery, but they're not they're not employed to 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 do it. Um, you know, this service isn't resourced um, at all in a programmatic way. And um, we're underfunded to even do my own, like in in the centre I work in in St. Columkill, St. Vincent's uh, University Hospital. Again, we we um, have such a small team that we can't provide a service to enough people in a timely fashion. Hence, our waiting list. So there's there's an you know the, and the Department of Health and HSE have um, listened to us. They have listened to our. We have an obesity uh, program that recently launched a model of care and how best to treat uh, obesity in young adults and um, uh, adults of all ages and and also in in children uh, and teenagers um, and so that's that's been published, so it's accepted by the Department of Health that these are necessary treatments, but there's absolutely no funding behind it. Yeah. They've identified we need to do 1,200 of these cases per year to do to go some way towards stemming the yeah. uh, tide in terms of the burden so, of so that kind um, of explains that explains the the waiting time, which yes. you know people people rather than wait around for years, people will go to the halfway around the world, but they also come to us, and this has come in on the phone. The typical surgery might cost 20,000 in this country. You get it done for six in, in Turkey. Mm. And how is that justified? Absolutely. And that makes me uh, think that corners are being cut in clinics abroad because we've looked, you know, I've looked at the cost to deliver this surgery really carefully if it were to be done in the private sector. And I should say that most of the health insurance companies in Ireland do cover this surgery, again, under strict clinical criteria, um, some of which I've mentioned, although they do require patients to be a heavier than would be required in the public system, uh, which I don't think is right um, because then surgical risks increase. Mm. But it is covered. But if somebody does doesn't have health insurance or their insurer doesn't cover surgery and doesn't w- want to wait six years, then self-paying is between, you know, as much as 20,000 in Ireland and, you know, between 16 and 20,000. But these are, they're, I mean, the, using the best equipment to get the best results, they, this is expensive equipment. Um, we use the best quality, you know, surgical devices, surgical staplers. And, and I think if it can be performed uh, for as low as five or 6,000, which I have seen, there, there must be, I, I have no evidence of that, but there must be corners has been mm. be, being cut, and there must be some less, some some decrease in the mm. quality of if, equipment if, if, that's if being that, used. If it's only that, if it's only that price, you're suggesting that there there may be a reason that we're not seeing. Well, someone's just come here and said, I know someone who went abroad for the gastric band. She was in hospital for many weeks and ended up being treated with terrible complications and being fed by drip. That's another side of it, and you sadly do see people like that. Yeah, sadly, every week, uh, multiple people, um, again, haven't had different types of, of operations from gastric bandering, sleeve gastrectomy, gastric bypass balloons. There's lots of different therapies and all have a role in treating obesity. But again, in the right person, in the right clinic and at the right time for that patient when they're well assessed. OK, listen, thank you for being with us today. That's Dr. Helen Heenahan, Professor of Surgery and a Consultant General and Bariatric Surgeon at St. Vincent's University Hospital in Dublin. The only surgeon...
in the health service doing this kind of work publicly, which of course is creating the waiting list, which has people getting on planes to go overseas. And she understands that waiting list, but we just wanted to bring that other side to you, because some people think we're openly promoting the idea that someone would travel. We're not. We're not. We've heard people's stories. Here's the other side. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk? The opinion line on Cork's 96 FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life, and health insurance. CMIG.ie. Access all areas on Cork's 96 FM. Your guide to nightlife on Leaside. Hi, it's Michael here with an update on Cork's Entertainment. Levis's music venue has two excellent Irish shows coming up in September, starting tonight with Jay and on Friday the 10th featuring David Kidd. All shows start at 7 p.m. and where possible booking groups of 4 to 6. Access all areas. Villager's fifth studio album Fever Dreams has just been released and Conor O'Brien's outfit make a welcome return to Cork for a show at Cork Opera House on Tuesday, November 2nd. Tickets are on sale now at corkoperahouse.ie. Access all areas. Feel free to let us know at Access All Areas if you have a show play or exhibition coming up or any live streaming events by emailing us at aaa at 96fm.ie. Access all areas. Your guide to nightlife on the side. On Cork's 96FM. So many people have been saying for so many years we need to change the education system and when the Leave Insert results come out, is it Friday? They're out, I think. When they come out on Friday, we'll have, and the CAO is being done next week and we'll be talking to people about points and getting places in here and there. Constantly we get the call that the Leave Insert is no longer fit for purpose, that the education system is working against people and that we need a replacement. So many people make this comment every year. We've heard it from so many more. But... When a teacher goes to the trouble of actually writing a book about it, you sit up and take notice. And such a teacher and journalist is Jennifer Horgan, who joins me now. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning, PJ. Your book is called Oh Captain, My Captain. And you say that the system is deeply unfair, inadequately old-fashioned and no longer fit for purpose. Why? Well, I suppose, Vijay, I think looking from the outside in to Ireland, one might assume that we feel the purpose of education is to get students to university. Um, If you were to look at our media, how we report on the Leaving Cert, you know, that would appear to be the case. And I just, I'm not comfortable with it. You know, I think that education should be about drawing students out to help them find their element, their voice um, and you know, our sort of obsession with compulsory subjects and this single route to university is harming students. It's harming our most vulnerable students. And it's also leaving society short of key skills, you know, that we need. So I think we need to really start questioning, well, what is the purpose of our education system? How do we want it to look? How do we want it to make, you know, a diverse group of students feel? Like we understand, I guess, that the Leaving Cert is the pathway and the results of the Leaving Cert are the pathway to third level. So realistically, you can't change one way without looking at how the other way will accept it. So how would you change the Leaving Cert or even abolish it and still have a pathway into university? 
Well, I have no issue with having a pathway to university. It was the pathway I went down and I loved it, had a great yeah. experience. I suppose my issue is that it seems to be in the way that we talk about it, it's that this is the only pathway that we value. Um, so um, in, in the book, I, I suggest that we really need to focus on the senior cycle. Um, I think primary schools have much more freedom, you know, because of the absence of one single exam. Junior cycle has had wonderful reforms. So I feel much freer as a teacher up until that point. But when it comes to fifth year and sixth year, there is such a narrowing and there's such pressure um, and each subject is so jam-packed that I feel like actually I don't have time to sit back and really talk to the students as individuals and really ask them, well, what do you enjoy doing, you know? So I I quite like the the, the British system. There is no one answer, okay? This is all about a conversation. But I like the idea that students in those final two years should get a chance to choose the subjects that they find most interesting. I think our young people are actually very, very advanced, far more advanced than I certainly was at at 16, you know. And I think at that age, they are capable of narrowing their focus. Um, And I think if we could, you know, change the system to allow for that diversification, this is not a dumbing down, okay? So I I don't want to Mm. to hear that argument. It's about a diversification. So you're suggesting something like an A-level system where you would pick, or whatever they call them now, an uh, an A-level system where you would actually pick three or four subjects to do for your, your final... Yeah. Yeah. Or that we would break down the sort of the very specific subject blocks, you know, like something like the International Baccalaureate, where you've got sort of like, um, you know, it's not it's not segmented into these narrow subjects. There's more of a sort of a focus on critical thinking skills, creative thinking skills, and they're actually kind of joining different mm. um, subjects and topics. Something like, I, I just think there's so many options out there. We need to look beyond Maybe, maybe teaching, and, teaching in Leaving Cert the way we now teach in first year university, where there's an awful lot more, like you said, critical thinking and, and your own mind involved. Why do you think no changes have been made over the years, though? Because we've been hearing these changes for years now or hearing calls for So change. one of the thing yeah one of the thing that that happens and I've noticed it a lot is that when you I write a, a column in the Irish Examiner um, yeah. and when you suggest um you know there needs to be a change a lot of people will say but you're not offering a solution as if there is one solution I mean if there was one solution to how we should teach in in schools everyone in the world will be doing it you know everyone be signing up this is it we found it there is no one solution what's needed is a conversation um and we have to constantly check in you know and think about is this system doing our, our children justice and I suppose I see as a teacher I actually see you know students being really upset crying because they're trying to struggle through a subject that they feel nothing for, you know, and that's actually deeply affecting their well-being. And I can't stand by that. I can't say that actually, you know, John must be able to um, quote extensively from um, a fellow um, or, you know, he, he, he can't progress um, in, in the system that, that is, is there for him. I just can't stand by that. I think that actually I don't have an issue with a student dropping English literature in the senior cycle. I'm an English teacher, but just focus on I don't the language. think that, Well, focus on the language. Or, yeah, I, I, I do. I mean, they're two very different subjects, English yeah. language and English literature. And it's very strange that we sort of push them together as one. Um, I, like, I love that not everybody loves poetry. How boring would the world be? You yeah. know, um, 
so I just, it's that sort of, it's overly prescriptive. It's as if we've already decided the end point for students. Yeah. Whereas what we should be doing is being responsive to them, to their needs, to their very diverse needs um, and to their interests. Yeah, yeah. In terms in terms of English, maybe you have a, a, a thought on this. Like we're still put, filling that course with literature that is tens, if not sometimes in the case of Shakespeare, hundreds of years old, isn't it time to move on to something that the youngsters are actually interested in? Well, I don't really agree in that. No. Shakespeare is actually amazingly accessible um, if it's taught in a way that connects it to modern life. I mean, his themes are universal and they're timeless and that's what's yeah. amazing about them. So it's more about how it's taught. Yeah, You're but learning again, off, I don't think learning that. off passages and regurgitating them into a paper at the end of the year isn't necessarily the way to do it. Jennifer, no. the, the, the Leaving Cert yeah. is out this week, out Friday, and people will be yeah. stressed to the nines now for the next couple of days. Any advice for them? Yeah, I suppose just to remember that there is... We've no idea what's going to happen tomorrow, any of us. Um, so not to feel that this determines and defines your future. Um, just stay calm, breathe, um, wait to see, think about options beyond the CAO, you know, um, think about other routes. As an EU citizen, there may be other options abroad. And there are plenty of excellent websites that you can look up in terms of alternate courses if you don't get the course you want. Um if you do get the course you want, I hope it's one that will, you know, bring you joy and happiness mm. and fulfillment. Um, I think it's hard for students to sit in the storm of the Leaving Cert um, in terms of the media around it. Yeah. And it's hard for them to not remind themselves that there are other options, you know, there, that, that we are diverse. Working in media, as I have for so long, and I have always stressed this, and I wonder, do you share it? What I do not want to see Saturday, but what I unfortunately will see Saturday, is newspapers full of people who've had seven, six, and seven hundred points. I don't want to see them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Um, and, and, you know, we have to remember that again, that's just celebrating one type of intelligence. Um, it's also completely ignoring the context of those students because actually there are students who might get very low points and who have, you know, jumped over hurdles that we can't even imagine, you know. Um, so it's, it's not it's not taking into account the bigger story, the context. Um, it's wrong, you know, and, and the school tables feed into that as well. And that culture of we are the best school, we're in the, all of that, it's rubbish because it's not, it's just looking, you know, at this very, very narrow group in a very, very narrow context. And it's doing our, I think it's doing our society a gross injustice um, in terms of telling us that we, we, we need to value just okay. one way of being, one way of thinking. Right. Yeah. Right. Um I don't. I don't know. Did you come across Fintan O'Toole's article? Um, I, I this didn't week, actually, Jennifer. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to leave it there with you uh, because it's a fascinating subject. But time is limited to us. Uh, thank you very much for being with us on the Pinline. That's Jennifer Horgan, the author of "Oh Captain, My Captain." I don't know that that Fintan O'Toole article to which she refers, but I'll get the details and have a read of it. Thank you, Jennifer. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. See MIG.ie.
The lines are live. And we're ready to talk. Can we just talk? Call 1850-715-996. Text or WhatsApp 083-396-9696. Email opinion at 96fm.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. On Cork's 96FM. There's the thing. See those numbers that Tony Hullohan has been predicting, or warning of, rather. Funny that he waited until after Michal Martin made the speech yesterday, or seems to have waited at least, that's the perception, seems to have waited until after Michal Martin's speech yesterday to unveil numbers like 200 and something in uh, ICU and 1,300 odd in hospital with COVID. Uh, And telling us that, well, we do know that the thing won't peak for another several weeks, which brings me back to the question I was putting to Michael McGrath, Minister Michael McGrath, earlier this morning, that should they not have waited until the public health experts said, well, it's peaked now, you can go ahead. But the minister said the government has done what it does and it'll probably sink or swim on that decision. And we all hope, we all would hope that the government is right and that uh, Dr. Houlihan is wrong on this particular occasion. 1850-715-996, which brings us uh, to another topic of conversation, very, very health-related, and that is that yesterday, Tuesday, 63 people were waiting on trolleys at CUH. The figures are just out for this morning. There are 40 people on trolleys in CUH. It's the second highest in the country behind Limerick. Limerick University Hospital has 59. And it reminds us of a an emergency, a brewing emergency at CUH in particular, because this is only the 1st of September. And a couple of weeks ago, we were hearing that the levels of overcrowding and the levels of intensity, as it were, in the emergency department were at winter levels. So here we are, 1st of September, we have winter levels of overcrowding in the emergency departments, not just around the country, but particularly here at CUH. Yesterday, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation issued a press release in which it said, the situation is out of control and extremely dangerous and warning that proper infection control measures cannot be guaranteed. Uh, Liam Conway is the Industrial Relations Officer for the INMO dealing with CUH and he joins me now. Liam, good morning to you. Good morning. Those are very worrying figures. I would be right, wouldn't I? This is roughly what you begin to see as winter sets in, not on the first day of autumn. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're very, very worrying um, across the region. Um, So, for example, even this morning, there's 14 patients on trolleys in the Mercy University Hospital. There's 40 in Cork University Hospital. Um, We've seen, I suppose, a, a significant increase in overcrowding in the summer months, but I suppose the 1st of September... Um, it really is um, a red alert in terms of uh, real concern and and this is an absolute crisis combine that with COVID-19 as well um, there's huge demand for services here at the moment in Cork and simply that the existing service can't meet that need it cannot cope and that's why we're seeing significant overcrowding at the moment Now what 
are your members experiencing on the ground? Obviously, it's getting so busy now. Your press release warns you can't maintain proper infection control. Now, someone's got to stand up and take notice of that. Yeah, I think, look, our members are, are, are very tired is the first piece to say, PJ. And I think anyone who's experienced the, the, the services uh, over the last number of months will understand that um, staff are working within the constraints of the emergency departments um, without adequate space um, and simply nowhere to put patients um, when they're admitted because there isn't enough beds in Cork University Hospital and the significant delayed discharges. Uh, our members are burnt out. And they're very, very concerned about infection control. We have to remember as well that our emergency departments are workplaces. Um, so that that's a major concern um, in terms of COVID-19. But also so we have to remember our members on, on medical and surgical wards and also maternity services who have a significant increase in demand at the moment. Um, they are, really are very, very tired. We're very concerned that if this pace continues and there is not a, an emergency response from the government, to deal with the overcrowding uh, and also to address staffing deficits, um, you know, our members will leave the profession. That That's the biggest concern we have at the moment. As a union, what can you do about this, if anything? Well, I suppose we, we have to be advocating to, to, to deal with the, the, the and put a solution in place. So, for example, um, the INMO have sought a number of measures from Cork University Hospital to address the overcrowding at present. A number of those measures include increasing staffing in terms of nursing, um, ensuring that consultants are seeing patients out of hours, um, ensuring that there's additional diagnostics in terms of CT scans out of hours for the emergency department, and also as well seeking that as a comprehensive winter plan um, that is actioned and actioned before the winter as well, including additional bed capacity and step down mm-hmm. facilities in the community. Um, the real reason ar- around this is that we have to understand there's a multiple factors at play. But we know for the last number of years, probably the last decade in Cork City alone, there's simply not enough step-down facilities for the MRC or COH to dis- discharge patients to um, after they've had their acute treatment in the emergency ha- hospitals, um, that th- there isn't a rehab facility, enough rehab beds. So the likes of St. Finbars, for example, services like that need to be expanded. Yeah. And we know, for example, as well, there's not enough home care packages available and home health services uh, to meet demand at the moment. Is this, is this really a, a reflection on the failure of successive administrations to take this by the scruff of the neck? Because I read a statistic recently, Liam, which said that since the start of the pandemic, we've only added on an extra 19 full-time ICU beds. Yeah, I suppose there's a number of factors. I think you, you look at Cork University Hospital, the demand for that hospital at present is significant. And um, in terms of ICU capacity, it needs to increase its ICU, ICU capacity. And to increase um, a bed, it's simply not just put, putting a, a blank check to, to that bed. You have to recruit the staff as well. Yeah. And you have to open that service and maintain it. Um, so there needs to be significant, um, I suppose, investment in terms of overseas recruitment and recruitment here at home but also there has to be a way of retaining staff as well during this, in this environment as well. We're coming out to a budget and we're told repeatedly every time that we have a budget that we spend, we've one of the highest per capita spends in the, the civilised world practically the highest per capita spends on public education so why, why still are we so short of beds and nurses? Well, I think, look, the, the, the HSC has invested significantly throughout COVID-19 and service and dealing with COVID-19. Um, but we have to remember that the overcrowding problem 
didn't go away during COVID-19. Yeah. It simply meant that people just were not presenting to the emergency departments because of fear of other COVID-19 or they weren't being referred because they weren't seeing their GPs. So that problem is still maintained. We haven't increased our bed capacity significantly in the acute hospitals or in the community services. And it remains a chronic problem here in Cork that there's simply not enough beds in CUH or the Mercy to meet with demand. And also as well, there's simply not enough um, beds in the community. We have to remember as well that we have to invest in community services as well. Um, If we can prevent people attending the emergency departments, and understand Cork University Hospital sent out a press release on, on that this morning, yeah. encouraging people to attend other services. They have a but like at, at, at present, we have our members reporting that people are presenting to emergency departments and they haven't seen their GP for various reasons. So th- there's a problem as well in terms of the community and getting access to healthcare in the community. And unfortunately, the emergency department is the gateway to get access to healthcare at the moment. And that, that's not acceptable in this mm. day and age. So that's what the government needs to address. Yeah. Now, we have yesterday's announcement by the Taoiseach about the opening up of society over the next 50-something days. This morning, we have the warning from the Chief Medical Officer that the, the this latest wave of COVID has not yet peaked. Given the situation presently in front of you at CUH, Liam, what would be your, your view on that? Would you be nervous about the weeks ahead? Well, absolutely. I think our members are, are going to be that as well. We have to remember COVID-19 um, is a hazard both in our community and unfortunately is a, a biological hazard in the workplace. Um, we have to look at this from, a, I suppose, a practical point of view. If you can't maintain social distancing and you can't provide um, a safe environment to provide care for patients in emergency departments that are overcrowded today and have been for the last number of weeks, um, it's providing another vector for the transmission of COVID-19. Um, within our acute hospitals. And we cannot afford to have hospital-acquired um, infections in terms of COVID-19, um, particularly if there's a rise in transmission in the commu- community. And also as well, you know, in, in terms of pr- protecting um, staff who work in, the, in these workplaces and emergency departments, there's legislation there to protect that as well. So um, really the employers locally need to ensure that all measures are taken to prevent overcrowding, but also as well in terms of protecting both staff and patients in these hospitals. But it is a very real concern for our members across services and including maternity services, which are seeing a peak demand at present. Okay. All right. Leave it there for now. Liam Conway uh, from the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation. It's a serious situation developing. We have the first, at the 1st of September, 1st of September, we have winter levels of trolleys at CUH. This morning it's 40, another 40 in the Mercy. So we have 54 people on trolleys in Cork this morning. Yesterday we had 63 in Cork and we had, I think, another 7 in the Mercy. So we had 70 yesterday. It's, 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 these are winter levels of trolleys in the emergency departments on the first day of autumn. So, God, it, it doesn't bear thinking about what might happen. 1850-715-996. Anya, you were listening to me talking to Jennifer Horgan about the education system and it prompted you to call the opinion. Will you wait for me until after the break and we'll talk then? Absolutely. Thank you, PJ. Brilliant. Okay, Anya. 1850-715-996. Can we just talk? The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Fully focused, what you mean? Got my eyes on a prize, that's me. Manchester City are the champions. Number one, that's top of the league. The best football league in the world is right here. Firmino with the flick. Salah! 
Fernandez is going to go for goal. Oh, what a goal. The Premier League Live, powered by Top Sport. Join me, Trevor Welch, exclusively online at 96fm.ie. Tune in Saturdays as we ramp up the excitement for the day's biggest games. We'll bring you pre-match analysis, live commentary and in-depth interviews with some legends of the sport. The Premier League Live. With now, your sport on your terms. Stream only the games that matter to you most. With now. Listen every Saturday exclusively online at 96fm.ie or download the Cork's 96fm app. Hear all the biggest hits from your favourite festival stars non-stop. Cork's 96FM's Back Garden Festival is now streaming exclusively online. Listen on our app or go to 96fm.ie. The Back Garden Festival with Harvey Norman and JBL. Your specialist in sound this summer. Cork's 96FM. Anya was listening to me talking to Jennifer Horgan about changes required in the school system and particularly in the Leaving Cert. And it, it struck a chord with you, Anya, did it? It did, PJ. Um, I have a daughter going into junior cert this year. Right. And already she's just in day two, but already overwhelmed by what's ahead of her, even down to the junior cert and these nine to 12 to 14 subjects. You know, children are, there's so much emphasis put on children's you know, results and what they get. And no exam, no exam should reflect a child's personality. It's a tiny part. We have beautiful, creative, fantastic children who are getting swamped, buried and totally overwhelmed in a system. That's not working. It's totally antiquated. It needs to change and it needs to change now. And listening to Jennifer talk there, I just thought she talked so much sense. Mm. And we need to give the Jennifer's of the world a platform. She has a huge audience. We need to listen. Yeah. You asked her what's going to change, what's going to, you know, what, what can we do to change this system? Let's get talking. Let's bring this discussion to the table. Stop, you know, sweeping it under the carpet and waiting for someone else to do it. We as adults are the advocates for our children. We are their voice. We need yeah. to do it and we need to do it now. You know, she, it's Pieta House child counsellors, child psychologists. You have to I hear stories about people and parents waiting weeks, months, sometimes over 12 months yeah. for an appointment with a child that is now in crisis. Yeah. Look, at our, look at our children. They're self-harming. They're committing suicide. They are struggling. We need to change this system. It's not working. It's yeah. not right. It's wrong. It's I know about 14, 14 sub, 12 to 14 subjects. They can have up to 14 subjects. When uh, and when you don't have to sit a and paper they, they in, every, every, in all of those. She doesn't have it now, but in first year, when she first went in, there was that. And then they whittled it down to so many subjects. But even that in itself. And then you throw COVID into the mix. The last year, Shauna had her first, her full year in school was sixth class, you know, because of COVID. And now they're heading into junior third. And that's causing a lot of upset. And I'm sure the gang going into leaving third the same. You know, they're not all going to be scientists. They're not all going to be huge academic careers. They don't yeah. need to be. I know people borrowing money to put children into Booth College and things like that. You know, when these children... They may never go on and have these. Uh, like I myself personally, I can only use myself as an example. I was not academic going to school, didn't enjoy school, felt totally overwhelmed. Was, and again, like that, I thought you had to study. I didn't know how to study correctly. And I was reciting everything and trying to, you know, like you said, of Shakespeare and all of that and Bach and Beethoven and, that I've never now used. But it wasn't until I left school that I realized I had a brain. I was intelligent. I went to London. I was promoted job after job. I was headhunted. I had a fantastic career. And what I'm saying, let children know, no exam, will, no exam result reflects them 
or, or their personality and it shouldn't and I think too much emphasis is put on that now mm. that because if you don't get 90% to 100% you're not intelligent you're not smart you're not going to do well in school yeah. that's nonsense that yeah. is completely not a nonsense and that's what Jennifer is saying there's too much emphasis being thrown on kids nowadays it's fine if you're academic and you're going to drive on and you love the books and you study and you'd love an yeah. academic career that's a tiny tiny percentage of children we have fabulous, fantastic, creative children who are getting totally buried and harming themselves because they cannot bear to go into school because they're totally overwhelmed by a system which is wrong, yeah. very and, wrong. But how else would we assess their academic ability at some point in their education? Find, look at their personalities, find out the creative side, ask them what they want, involve children. Involve them. Children are smart, they're clever, they know what they like, they're very perceptive. Involve them in things, ask them what they'd like, give children a voice. Mm. You know, for so long now, we, we tell them what they should do, what they can do, what they can't do, they must study, they must get this. If you don't get this result, you're not going to get that, you won't move on to this, you won't. Let them speak, let's listen to them. Mm. Like when they move out into the world of adulthood, as you did and I did and others mm. did, you mm-hmm. find very rapidly that when you sit in front of an interview board, the first thing they want to see are your academic scores. Until we change that, that needs to change, and that will change when the education system changes. That will change. That will be automatic. That will be an automatic flow. I worked for a company whereby um, we were employing a lot of engineers. So there was a lot of paperwork assessment and who was the best on paper. And I was brought in to the interviews to find out the personality side as to would they fit within the group, how do you think of the teamwork they would work. And it wasn't always the person who had the best scores that I went for. Invariably, it was the person, the personality that I thought, they'd be great now, they'll work great with that engineer, with that director, they'd be wonderful on the team. And I would always go for something just on the personality. That was fantastic. We brought loads of people into companies on that. And now those companies are still thriving and doing extremely well. Yeah. Are you, are you concerned? I'm sure, listen, you sound like a fine, solid, reliable, dependable mammy that she can come home to for support. But are you, are you worried about your daughter heading into this? Very, the very. Absolutely, yeah. Because I just know, I see her, I see the change in her. She had a wonderful summer, thank God. She, you know, there was lots of friends, the beach was great, the weather. Uh, she made a new bunch of buddies, wonderful. We're back to school now again. I can see the cloud hanging over. I can see the twisting of the fingers. I can see the eyes darting around as she gets out of the, out of the car. We're back to it again. You know, it's just hard. It's very hard to see your children suffer like that. And she, I have another child then who's huge academic, who loves school, can't get in there fast enough. Yeah. Not everybody's the same. And our, our education system is treating everybody across the board as the same. They're not. They're individuals. They're fantastic. They all need to be treated differently and heard. The system needs to change and adapt to suit our children, not to suit an education panel or whatever it is suiting at the moment, because it's not working. It's not right. And, I, and Jennifer, she spoke so well. It, it just really opened my eyes. I'd never pick up the phone to ring you, PJ. I've often listened to different topics of discussion, but I feel so strongly about this. It needs to be brought to the table. It needs to be brought into the doll. It needs to change. It needs to start changing now. Look at our children who are suffering. They're self-harming. They're, there's drugs. There's all sorts of abuse. They're not happy. I am so glad you picked up that phone, Anya. Thank you. Thank you, PJ. Thank you for the time. Thank you for listening. Cheers. 1850 715 996. Can we just talk?
The Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call in person or call them now. They don't just talk the talk, they walk the walk. CMIG.ie. The Opinion Line with PJ Coogan. Call us now. 1850-715-996. On Cork's 96FM. Right, a few bits of business to clear. First of all, the Cork University Hospital statement this morning with regard to the situation in A&E, or ED, as it should be called these days. We know, know there are 40 people on trolleys this morning at the CUH. There are another 14 at the Mercy, so 54 in total, down from 70 yesterday, but still hefty numbers for the time of year. CUH management have asked that where appropriate the public would contact their GP in the first instance and then explore all other options prior to attending the emergency department. Go to your GP, contact South Dock, go to the Mercy Urgent Care Centre, open ground and Braher, the old orthopaedic. That's open from 8 till 6. If you're in West Cork, you can go to the local injuries unit at Bantry. That's open from 8am to 7.30pm. If you're in Mallow, they have an injuries unit also there from 8am to 7pm. Hospital management is acknowledging the hard work and dedication of all staff, etc, etc, and thank the public for their cooperation and support. But effectively, do not make the emergency department your first port of call. Try other options first. On the virus and the restrictions and the opening thereof, this was drawn to my attention. Actually, Fergal drew John Campbell's latest video to me, to my attention last evening. I watched some, but not all of it. I must sit down and take a look at it later on. But it's a very sobering one because Dr. John Campbell, who has been a guest on this program many times, analysing the data and analysing the stuff coming in from around the world, he now pretty much reckons that we're all at some point or other going to get this blasted thing. If we're vaccinated, it'll pass through us. It won't do us much harm. If we're not, we could be in trouble. Herd immunity looks impossible, according to John's latest video, and it's going to be endemic, and we'll just have to live with it like we live with the common cold. That would seem to... I must have a more detailed look at the video, but that seems to be what he's saying. And did, I, did you see Dr. Campbell's video yesterday, PJ, says this, mensch, or this message? Very bad news. Uh, it's all, all that's been forecast. We will now get COVID-19, all of us, regardless of vaccination. It shows how ridiculous the zero COVID idea was. Cases will be so high, they see no point in reporting them. Well, I was a, an advocate for zero COVID. I was an advocate for elimination. I still think it would have been the best thing for any of us to try until this blasted Delta came along and rendered it almost impossible. But I would be concerned by what John is saying also. I'll watch that video in more detail, maybe come back to you tomorrow, might even have a clip of it. Twitter being a cesspit, admittedly, you get this. But a lot of people are being very critical of people like me this morning and people like Sarah McInerney on television last night, just questioning the narrative of what's happening over the next few weeks. You know, hitting a few questions like, should we not have waited? Or the way Sarah grilled into Leo Bradcar last night with a few questions about going back to work. That's kind of our job. So if you want us to pretend that all is hunky-dory in the garden about COVID-19, you're barking up the wrong tree there. It's positive, but we ain't out of this yet. And I will be very interested to see 
that video from John Campbell. And I wonder how many people are, because I think a lot of people are genuinely nervous, hopeful. I'm hoping against hope. Lads, I am the most hopeful. I really, really hope that we're doing this right. I really, really hope we're doing it right. And I'll be the first person on the 23rd or 24th of October to say to the government, well done, you got it right, if they get it right. 1850 Just on the subject of catering jobs and hospitality industry. And of course, hospitality now facing big change over the next few weeks with uh, bigger capacity. And, and we hope that by the end of October, longer opening hours and all of that. But we saw there where Bunny Canellans had to close recently for a week because they just don't have the staff to to keep the place open. And, and they're not the first. There are others who are struggling and they're opening later because they just don't have the staff to keep the place. There seems to be a fierce problem in getting hospitality staff. And you wonder why. Uh, Fergal Hart is uh, he is the Cork Chair of the Irish Hotels Federation and, of course, the gaffer at the Kingsley. Fergal, good morning to you. Morning, PJ. Good to speak with you. Why is it so hard to get staff? There's still tens of thousands of people out of work drawing the PUP. Yeah, I think I think a lot of factors came together, PJ, um, during the pandemic and throughout the course of the crisis, really, that have that have you know caused us to reach a situation where where we we do have great challenges uh, in hotels in in um, in attracting new staff and in retaining uh, our existing staff as well. I think you know, fantastic work was done during the the worst of the crisis and during the lockdown, um, you know, the, the various lockdowns by all hotels really to, to really to, to stay in touch with staff and to either by by Zoom meetings and quizzes and um, all 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 the different activities that were put in place, and I, I think you know. For for the large part, hotels were were quite successful in that regard. Obviously, with reopening during the summer and and the pent up demand that was there, there have been challenges in in in, in certain areas uh, in in trying to attract uh, staff and and you know that 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 creates its own problems because obviously staff are are inexperienced in some cases and it can mean that we we have to be maybe more flexible than we were previously and and take different approaches to, to situations just to ensure that we're able to to service the business that's coming in and that our, our, our own businesses are, are kept viable really for the future, you know. Mm. Could it be that it might be more attractive to some people to stay at home on a PUP? Uh, you know, I, 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 I think... We we haven't we haven't seen you know huge instances of that. Obviously, there is there is a, some suspicion around that, but you know I I think we'll see now in in September with everything starting to kind of settle back down and hopefully with this kind of return to normality as as it is you know and we all we all have we all share the concerns that you were that you were mentioning just there now PJ that you know we we do obviously hope like everyone else that uh, by the 22nd of October that we will have returned to to uh, to the the kind of pre-covid situation or as much normality as we can have and i suppose by that by that time we'll we'll have a better we'll have a clearer um, indication really of the effect of of the pup and really just just to see with with, with colleges back reopening and um, and 
you know, I suppose more students around and all that kind of stuff as well, that maybe hotels will have more opportunities there to attract uh, staff on a part-time basis at least, you know. So um, I think we are overall, we're optimistic for the future. You you suggested briefly there that maybe for some people it is more attractive to be at home on a PUP. Now, isn't that a kind of an indictment of paying conditions in your sector if it is more attractive for someone to sit at home and draw their pub? Well, I, I think I think the pay and conditions in the sector have, have improved greatly. There's no there's no question, and that and that's that hasn't just been the the, the crisis uh, by you know the COVID crisis. I think that's been happening over a long number of years, and I, you know huge efforts are being made within the industry to ensure you know that 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 we are uh, attractive to people to come it's, in. It's and seen Fergal as a minimum wage industry, where minimum wage is actually the average wage. I, th- I think that's changing, and I, I think I think if people start, you know, when when they engage with with hotels, and and we're finding that ourselves that we're, we're having to be more flexible and and probably forward thinking, and and that's been like I say, that's been happening over a long number of years, PJ, and I, I appreciate there 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 can be a perception out there, and and that we may be seen in a particular light, um, but the truth of it really is that the industry has moved on a lot from from where it was maybe twenty or thirty years ago, you know, um, and there are there are great opportunities there, even. In, in terms of the national body for the IHF, you know, we recently recruited um, a skill net <clears throat> network and, lean, and learning manager in uh, Dervil O'Neill. And she's she's done fantastic work there, just in ensuring that there are lots of courses and, and different opportunities for training and development. And uh, hotels are massively uh, focused on that whole area now. And I'm trying to ensure, because we, obviously we realise it's in our interests mm. to, to attract new young people and, or new people into the industry and to retain them for the future yeah. and to we, ensure we, that we, they're... We, they're we do trained. have a huge problem though, don't we? And, and again, look, look into the future and hiring training people, it's all very good and I wish everybody well with that. But the idea that in, in the middle of a reasonably good summer, that one of our best known restaurants in one of the best positioned places of any restaurant in the whole of County Cork finds itself having to close for a week because it can't get staff. Something's wrong in the sector. If it can't get staff in the middle of a summertime, yeah, and no, there's plenty I, I, of people I, I looking to get in and yeah. get something to eat. I don't argue that there that there are challenges there, PJ. You know, Do you know I, what the I, challenges I can't, are? I can't comment. Uh, I, I, yeah, absolutely. You know, as as I've just said, there 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 have been lots of changes. You know, there there have been lots of uncertainty, I suppose, within the industry over over the past eighteen months now of the of the the pandemic, and you know, people have moved to to other sectors, uh, maybe where they feel there's there's more job security, I suppose that that are not not affected by COVID and, and things like this. Mm. Uh, others have moved back to their home countries and maybe, you know, have decided not to return to Ireland. Um, obviously, the, the the kind of visa situation and, and international travel generally was was tightened up a lot uh, because of COVID, and so so there's a there's a range of factors that have come together there that have probably really exacerbated the situation. Has it not? We, maybe has COVID not? Maybe in a little way, at least, Virgil, exposed the hospitality industry as one where there are low wages, long hours, and 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 split shifts and all that old nonsense still going on. Um, well, like, like I like I say, um, PJ, I would argue that that a lot of that is gone. You know that that really the industry has moved on, and and I I would argue that that that's been happening over a long number of years because because the industry has recognised the fact that some of the practices that happened there in the past, in, and I'm talking about 30 years ago. Mm 
certainly shouldn't have been happening and and it would have been impossible to carry on uh, as the industry was maybe at that stage so there has been a recognition i think across the board that um that the um the benefits of working in the industry had to be improved and 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 i think that has happened so maybe covid has has helped the process along as yeah. well over the last couple of years because there's been such changes and in such a short space of time but um i, I you know i really just there, there there are fantastic opportunities there for for people looking for maybe a change or to to come out of college or, or out of school there, there are brilliant opportunities there within the industry, mm-hmm. and I, I would encourage everyone to really engage with hotels and and to 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 see what those opportunities are. And to I know, know I know that we'll get a, a decision uh, told uh, on next Tuesday or Wednesday as to whether or not there'll be a jazz festival in Cork this year. One hopes against hope that there will be. I missed it desperately, and so many people did last year. But if exactly. there's a jazz yeah. festival, Fergal, will you have staff to staff it? I, you know, I think we will. I, like the, the the reality is that there, this is a, a flexible uh, industry and sector, PJ, and I think we've we've proven that, and and we've shown throughout the the whole the COVID situation that we've we've managed to to change some of our, our practices just to ensure that that all of our, our guests and our staff were kept as, as safe as possible. We've pro- we've proved that I think over the over the past eighteen months, and we've risen to every challenge that that has been put in front of us. Um, now I think you know we 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 have lots of issues there which are being addressed and I can't talk about any particular you know a restaurant or whatever else that that is in that situation but I do know across the across the whole sector there's a real drive there to try and address these issues and and to uh, I suppose move in the in the right direction so that we can have a viable industry for the future and with a look forward finally to the uh, news that will come next week. How important is it to the hospitality sector that we try to do some kind of a jazz festival this year? Oh, absolutely. You know, we're 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 one hundred percent in favour of the jazz festival and of all of all you know events and activities and festivals for Cork. You know, we see that as an extremely positive thing, and and certainly the news yesterday overall was positive. We're we're still waiting for clarification on some of the the kind of aspects around indoor hospitality and the numbers involved and all that kind of stuff. But certainly by the twenty second of October, um, we would hope to be in a position you know where we're, we're returning to normal. We're looking to the future, and we're we're getting all those those events and activities and festivals back back in place. We'll see where it goes and we'll hopefully know an awful, an awful lot more by this time next week. Thank you very much. Fergal Hart, who's the chair of the Irish Hotels Federation in Cork and Gaffer at the Kingsley. Let's go for the Pitch Circus and Street Arts Festival then. So it's going to be it's, 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 uh, situated in Douglas Street um, for most of the month of September actually. And we're what we're doing is we're doing this and chats. So we're setting up a couch on Douglas Street for um, a couple of hours uh, four days a week for the next two weeks, and we're going to just sit there and have a space where people can come and have a chat, just like we used just to like for thousands of years. Why just not? Like yeah. Why did I overcomplicate it for myself? So they can come down to the parklet and just sit down and have a chat. Yeah, we're just yeah. going to have chats. Yeah, we're going to be sitting there and we're going to tell stories to people and listen to their stories and just get people to spend time again and right. to just be in each other's company and see what's going on, feel the pulse in the city, just like you do do every day, PJ. Right, right, and and and. Literally, it's just come along. Like, there's no tickets, there's no nothing. So, the, so people can go on to the circusfactorycork.com page and that will bring them into the pitched street arts and circus festival. And there's a whole program of events. So, Paddy and I are part of what's called Decent Chat. Pure That's Day my favourite bit, yes. What's that about? Yeah. 
And that's just what you do. You sit around chatting all day. That's what we do. We're going to... No, but yeah, you actually have to book in, PJ, because um, if, people have, if people want to come down, they have to book in. So you can book in online through right. the Street Art Special or the Pitch Festival. like. Yeah, or you can just wander on down. And if, because obviously we have to keep things safe. Yeah. Um, if, if there's space there, there's no one there, uh, people are feeling comfortable, you can just join in in the conversation. Right. And what, what are you going to be talking about? Well, we're going to focus in on, we're going to, in general, have chats, but we're going to have some focus as well. So we're going to be asking people, like, what's their memories of the city? What's the best stories, the, the best things that have happened to them in Cork City? And how do, they, how do they imagine Cork in the future? How do they imagine streets to be used in the future public spaces? Because we're a lot about, like, trying to bring public art back into spaces. So yeah. there are spaces where life can be lived and brought into focus through art. Right, and we've we've had a lot of the of, of street art and a lot of additional street art during during the last eighteen months, Noel. So uh, again, it's it's getting back into the streets, getting back into just spending time together. Yeah, basically, um, the you know there's street artists like uh, Cormac Mahali, who's been part of the streets art in Ireland for the last twenty years, but it's now become very much yeah in in focus. And it's really, really important for people to have the street on the art so that they can actually, or the art on the street, so they can actually go out and get involved in it. Mm. Um, due to, yeah, due to COVID over the last couple of years, it's, you know, and what we're, what we're, the feeling for myself and Cormac back in March was that people are digitally exhausted. Everything goes up online. Everything's yeah. online. Yeah. Um, so we've decided to, Sit as, as story collectors and people who love just to have chats. Paddy and myself are people who we just love sitting down talking to people and yeah. sharing space with people. And, um, so and that's we, gone a bit, isn't it? Pardon? That's a little bit gone because Zoom, it, yeah, Zoom it, it, we, had, we had no option for a while, but now we have the option again and we wonder, are we going to be able to do it? Yeah, exactly. So we're, we're creating a space. I, I myself as an artist, have constantly struggled that it's online and even before COVID I was going, we need to create less digital time and more space like that for people just to literally meet each other. So, yeah, that's what we're doing. We're 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 sitting down and literally meeting people without having loads of recording equipment and um and Paddy and I may take little notes and stuff like that. Mm. And then, but on the 26th on Red Abbey Square, we're gonna we're gonna collaborate with uh, Gary from GMC Beat. Ah. He's from the cabin up in the north side. He's, he does fantastic work up there. Um, there's great stuff coming out of Holly Hill up there from him. Oh yeah, Green. old pal of mine. No, well, and what he's so, at? Yeah. Sorry. I know, I, an old buddy of mine, and I know well what he's doing up there. He's doing great stuff. Yeah, and so we're going to collaborate with Gary then to um, bring some of the stories to the street on that day between 1 and 4 o'clock. There's a lot happening on Red Abbey Square. So Paddy and myself will be joining in on that and taking the stage at some point and literally retelling stories like you would when you return home after a day in work uh, to your kitchen and you tell the stories as you would to someone who's at home. This is effectively a conversation festival. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's loads of other street art and circus stuff happening. Like there's, like Tumble Circus are coming down from Dublin. Uh, Gracie is another girl that's doing amazing hula hoop. There's loads, loads. If you look at the programme, there's loads of stuff happening. 
But we, yeah, it's all about reconnecting. It's called arch refracted because uh, Cormac's idea was like, where where do we now see um, the artist, the audience, and how do we reimagine reimagine our art, our culture, our festivals? What do our gather What do our gatherings look like? So he's coined the festival or teamed it as art refracted. So. That's what we're working. That's our kind of working team, let's say. Okay. Um, we do have one. We do have one show that's indoors, and the tickets won't be going on sale until the 14th, because we have to figure out how many tickets can be sold and things like that. With the news when what's coming out. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a fantastic aerial artist that ju- that arrived on our shores back in 2019, September 2019. Um, Lydia Shola and she's doing Unholy Blood um, it's an aerial show down at, at the actual conte- contemporary space that we have on the marina um, that's called the Circus Factory down in Cork so yeah, yeah or in the city So plenty happening over the next couple of weeks thank you Paddy and thank you Noel uh, from I'll get it right now the Pitched Circus and Street Arts Festival and the two lads are with Pure Decent chats. That was total confusion but I think at the end of a busy morning you'll get away with it, alright? So apologies to all concerned. Me mind wasn't in it. Would you blame me? The programme edited by Phil Corcoran, produced and researched by Fergal Barry. I'm getting out of here for a lie down. See you tomorrow just after nine. Can we just talk the Opinion Line on Cork's 96FM. With McCarthy Insurance Group. Call them now for motor, home, business, farm, life and health insurance. CMIG.ie Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.